Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I am really thrilled to have with us today, Dominic Williamson. What's up, Dom? Hi. Hi, Ty. Good to reconnect. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to have you. And and so thanks for joining us. I'm uh, I'm here in Austin, Texas. It's a exciting week here. We have F1 coming into town. We have a Marketing Land event here tomorrow. And then there's an all-in podcast 150th episode gathering in, in town. So there's like all kinds of fun little things popping up. I actually, as I walked into this uh, episode, Bill Gurley, I heard his voice while they're doing startup pitches here at the Capital Factory in Austin. And I, my ears perked up. I'm like, wait a second, is that Bill Gurley? And it, and it was. So we're, he's just about 20 yards away for the startup fanboys out there. That sounds fun. I'm in San Francisco. I don't think there's quite as much going on this weekend, but um, it's uh, it's it's very. This is the nicest time of year from from a weather perspective. I know you you were here before, but yeah, you you kind of uh, during the summer it's cold, and then now now it's unseasonably warm. So it's it's nice. I love it. Yeah, it's a great time to be in the Bay Area uh, for sure. It looks like it's been beautiful. Well, I'm super excited to dive in with Dominic today. He's such a seasoned analytics pro. So you and I were on the same team, larger team at internet marketing at eBay, and you've led strategy and analytics for Facebook, for FanDuel, for Compass, for Instacart, like an insanely awesome resume uh, and very accomplished. So amazing to you and excited to just dive into all the all the fun data things uh, today. Cool. Looking forward to it. Absolutely, man. Um, well, cool. Like maybe super basic level, what, when you kind of break down what you do in, in strategy and in analytics, like how would you kind of just describe it to a fifth grader at a basic level? Well, my son is a fifth grader, so this is not, not entirely theoretical. I essentially look at the spend when when people spend on marketing and, and advertising media in particular. I investigate that with different techniques to understand whether or not it was worth it, and then the step beyond that is, is to make that investment better. So, where are the areas where we could invest more? Where could we invest less? And then within each of those channels, how can we do better? So, it's really making sure that the money that people spend on marketing is as effective as possible. And it's, it's, but it's mostly from that objective viewpoint. It always sits somewhere between finance and marketing to, to say, well, here's the money. Here's how you spent it. Was that a good idea? Where else can we spend it? Yeah, that's really interesting. This is such a, such a great one. What are some of the big maybe learnings you've, you've had? And you don't have to necessarily name the exact name, but like, what are some of the course corrections you've seen at maybe at the macro level or, what are some of the um, suggestions or recommendations that have come out of those? Uh, hey, was this spend valuable or not? Yeah, I think some of it won't come as a surprise to you at all. I, I think the big piece was, um, and this is not a secret, but but at eBay, 
doing geo-level targeting to understand what the impact was. Uh, the struggle that you have with attribution is that it's so nice and convenient and it gives you exact numbers and you can look at them every week and you can draw charts and, and you can present your reports. But the underlying question of, well, what is this really showing us is the one that I think testing is, is the answer to. And I think, uh, as you know, testing is key to understanding all of these, the, the true incremental impact of everything. And I do think, Geotesting at eBay was a was a really big starting point. And I think at the time it was very new for the industry as well. The idea of looking at something that had been traditionally measured through last click and, and pretty much last click alone and, and taking it from an entirely separate angle, which essentially ignores all of that information and says, well, what about these geos versus these geos? What's the difference there? Uh, so I think that was a, a really big piece in understanding that things could be done in a different way from a measurement perspective, but then also obviously in an operational way. I think it was the acid test of whether or not spend was was as effective as we thought it was, and, and that was a, a great learning there. And I know that's it's in the public domain now, the, the geo-level tests. Um, Steve Tadalis and, and team published that. So it's it's one that I think I do see on occasion still being brought up, but I think the, the whole industry has moved on from that now. That was the great first step, and then everything else has been building on since then. But I think that was the first, the first real eye opener. I think was that. Yeah, you were kind of part of that pioneering wave. To be candid, um, and I think it's something a testament to you and a lot of your teammates and the contributions you've made. If you don't mind, like for folks that are maybe less a couple steps removed from some of these incrementality tests and the measurement of marketing and seeing if it is valuable or not, is it safe to say that the geo level test is a type of holdout test? Is that correct? It's a type of holdout test. And the nice thing about it is that it's also just a campaign that happens to be on in a certain geo. So in that sense, it's very transparent and intuitive for people. And it's it's a great way to introduce testing because everyone understands this idea of, well, if this geo is on and this geo is off, I should expect to see an impact at the geo level. So yes, it's 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 kind of like a user level holdout if the users were geos rather than people. And then obviously that comes with its drawback as well, because there's a lot more noise when you only have two or, I mean, 200 geos that, that you can be using in the US, but that's a lot less than the millions of, of users that you might have. So it, it loses something in, in terms of readability, but it gains a lot in terms of intuitiveness and also just being able to operate against it. You can't actually always operate against the user level because you don't always know exactly who everyone is and who's seeing what. You usually do know where they are. Um, and so it does make it easier to, to kind of execute. So as a rule, I would always prefer to do a user level holdout test because um, you just you control for the most things there. But in practice, geo level tests are, are really helpful and, and often the only option for, for some of these things. But yes, to answer your question, it's a holdout test. But the holdout is, a, is an area rather than a set of people. Well, it is a set of people, but it's a set of people in, in its own area. And for those not aware, it, it helps evaluate if there was a, a measurable lift in the geo that received the ad versus not. And so therefore the brand can go, well, this worked or it didn't generally, correct? Exactly. So you have your, you have your, let's say you're, you're using the US, you target a certain portion of the US and, and maybe it's at state level, maybe it's at DMA level um, and DMA being kind of the, the smallest level that you can execute a TV campaign. And maybe it's at those levels, but you split them up and you say, these people will see it, these people won't. And you expect to see a lift in the area that, that did see it. So it's a, it's a great way of doing a test on the sly because you could just call it a geo campaign. 
The difference between it and an actual geo campaign is that you want to, as, as much as possible, randomly select your geos rather than select the select New York and San Francisco and LA because they're the big ones um, because that's that's going to skew it. But yeah, it's it's a nice way of of working with a team, uh, a marketing team in particular, to to ensure measurement, but but not make it measurement first per se. Interesting. That makes sense. And then you're you're am I correct to assume you're kind of selecting geos that have characteristic similarities? How do you make sure that those aren't skewed to your New York point earlier? Yeah, there are different ways. So in theory, you want to randomly take, you've got 200 DMAs, let's say, you want to randomly split them in half and use them. In practice, that doesn't really work because there's so few of them that you rarely get a great match that way. So you have to do a bit of, it, it's called, um, you can use stratified samples. So you can say, well, these, here's a group of kind of tier one and here's tier two and here's tier three, and then kind of randomly sample within that to make sure that you do get a good selection. You're often working with um, with the agency, or if you are working with an agency, but you're often working with the buyers to say, what can we actually do? It, it, it's not always possible. And that can sometimes, I'm, I'm thinking more from a TV perspective right now, but that can sometimes impact mm-hmm. where they say, well, we've only got inventory in these five places. Like, is this going to work? And there's always, I think, a, a line between doing something because it's a, a practical thing to do and doing something for for the purposes of measurement later and and that's i think part of my role is to make sure that we're not just forcing it into a measurement structure that, that actually makes it less effective but but we can find that happy medium between the both where we're spending we're, we're investing wisely from a how big an impact can we have point of view but we're also doing it in a way that, that's measurable the geos is a big question there because a national campaign can, on TV again, can cost about the same as 70% of the country. So if you're doing a 30% holdout, you're just losing 30% of your reach. And so you have to kind of get that right balance of, uh, do I need to measure this? Do I want it to have as big a bang as possible? Picking the right path. And it's not, uh, you can't walk both paths simultaneously. You can't have as big an impact as possible and as measurable an impact as possible at the same time. So how do you structure it to make sure it's the right place? I love that sentiment because I think oftentimes brands and marketers get really ahead of their skis and excited about Mm -hmm. we're going to go really 10 out of 10 on attribution and incrementality and they don't always recognize like what is the cost of that in media and hours in in time in limiting that reach a little bit? Right. And then to your point, is that investment actually giving them the long-term and short-term return that they're asking and wanting? For example, if it's a product launch, do you need a holdout? Are you going to do this ever again? Do you need to understand and replicate? So you might not want a holdout at all in that situation. But but conversely, if you're doing something where you think, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this every three months for the next three years, I should know what, what it's really doing and I should have a better read of, of how much return I'm getting. So I think I think those strategic questions need to be answered first before you then design, how do I actually execute this? I love that. You kind of reference TV, you know, a fair amount in that, you know, example. Do you find that when you're, kind of counseling with performance marketing teams that maybe other channels are similar in their ability to do those types of holdouts and lift tests and be curious to hear what channels you like to like to do that with and which ones might be more difficult other channels are usually better 
the reason I keep mentioning TV is, is it's pretty much your only option. If you if you are doing TV and you want to hold out, Geo is pretty much your only option. I think with other channels, you get more flexibility in terms of what you can do. Every digital channel generally gives you the option to, to have a Geo targeting and therefore Geo holdout. And often there's no real cost in terms of uh, loss efficiency uh, if you do Geo target. So the, the 70% I mentioned before is really for TV if you do that in, in mm-hmm. digital targeting it tends not to be an issue so um so yeah i I think other channels lend themselves even more to this type of measurement Mm -hmm. there can be a struggle in every channel of individual user level targeting holdouts because you need to have a very clear consistent view of who is who and that's easier to do if it's which geo is which geo versus which individual is which individual. Um, but obviously it is possible, but it's just, it's just harder. Uh, so I think yeah. it depends on, on the channel, but I would say every digital channel lends itself to, to geo testing and, and a lot of them lend themselves to user level testing really well as well. That's awesome. I have to bring it back to the fifth grade kind of macro case uh, here. Is that your, would be your son in this case you mentioned? Do you have a yeah. fifth grader? Yeah. He's at school right now, so I can't bring him in to, to give his view of what I do. But um, but yeah, <laughs> on the next episode, I think yeah, no, he'll he'll be taking people's jobs soon. Uh, the next generation, well, hopefully, um, yes. one more traffic <laughs> <laughs> economically right now. So hopefully that's <laughs> So for the fifth grade perspective, when you're when you does the question ever come up? Does marketing work? And so obviously it's a very blanket question and it's one that, you know, you're kind of at the core asking yourself and your colleagues, but most often does it seem to be working or are you kind of like, eh, don't, don't do it? It definitely works. And if, if work it means do people buy things more because you have marketed them, no, no doubt that that is true. Does it work well enough to justify the investment? That's the real question, right? That's the crux of the question. And, and that varies a lot. Um, there's the classic quote, right? The, the half of my marketing dollars work. I don't know which half. I think now we, we understand which half better than we ever did before, or at least we're, we're certainly building out that, that understanding a lot better. Uh, I would say that a lot of marketing spend is is not driving as much response as the cost of that spend. I think that, that's fair. I think there are broader impacts of marketing as well. So in terms of brand building, there is that kind of nebulous impact that, that could be there for the future too. But I do think people could almost invariably be more efficient with their marketing spend. And uh, and I think there's there's a real push to make sure that happens. And I think it's certainly growing as a, in terms of maturity, people's ability to, to spend the, the dollar in the place that does give them the right return is, is improving. Yeah, I, I love that. And I would say that we share that enthusiasm. I, I, there's very few brand advertiser campaigns in our world of performance marketing where I'm not really excited to look under the hood with my colleagues and go, how can we save you money? How can we think about ways to spend the same or less and get the same result? Mm-hmm. Or conversely, if you're in growth mode, how do we scale up to spend 30% more and get 80% more value? So I think that's the fun of what we get to do. And, and while there's creativity involved in that, obviously there's a lot of data and analytical work that you and your team are very steeped in that, that is at the core of what you do. Maybe a transition with that does marketing work, like what are some of the myths that you find in analytics in your field and that 
you know, maybe even like your trained colleagues might come up against every once in a while. What are some of the things that you want to debunk for the audience today? I think there are certain hand wavy pieces that that always end up with us erring on the side of being generous. And so by that, I mean, there's people will say, well, the, the rising tide floats all boats. So maybe this has impacts on, on other things, which I just mentioned as well. I think it, it is genuine. But at the same time, I think we have to quantify that because otherwise we have a tendency to just use it as a uh, as this theoretical extra value that, that's never being captured, but somehow makes everything justified. I think you see that particularly with brand campaigns as well, where we say, well, look, we didn't see it. We didn't see the sales right now, but maybe there is this long-term impact further down the road. Maybe there is, but but we should we shouldn't assume that there is, right? We should we should get to a place where we understand how that works. And I get that it's hard, obviously, that the longer an impact takes to manifest, the harder it will be to measure. But we can't just make the assumption that it did, right? Then, then you always err on the side of overinvestment if that's your assumption. And, and so you essentially skew it so you're always always getting it wrong. That uh, kind of reminds me of the old saying that uh, hope is not a strategy. Right. It's a good uh, reminder. But the thing is, I think it's fair. I don't think it's unfair to say, well, this model doesn't capture the, the longer term impacts, right? I don't think that's untrue. We can't assume that 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 kind of mystery extra bonus impact is somehow always enough to justify the investment. So I, I think that's the point is that they, there is a tendency because you have, you as the individual, uh, not, you know, depending on your role, but you, you buy media from someone, you want that media to have been as effective as possible. You inevitably kind of err towards this generous view of the response. And that mindset is, I think, the problem and and changing that mindset, shall we say, is the opportunity. Because if you go out there and say, I don't want these results to show me that everything I did was great. Because if I do, where do I go from there? I want them to show me that these three things didn't work for me because then I can improve. Then I can, then I can find opportunities to invest elsewhere. Then I can find more efficiencies. But your kind of natural inclination as a human being is to say, I just spent all this money. Uh, It must've been effective. Let's hope it's effective. And, And so- if you can create a, a framework where you work, where you're actually looking to find places that you spend in the wrong place, the, ineffectively, and you're kind of, you're happy to find those things. And you those are the opportunities. If you can switch it to that mindset, then I think that's where you're going to get the growth and, and the efficiency gains. I love that. It's like, um, there's kind of like the, the psychological concept of growth mindset, but you're essentially saying if you apply those principles in an analytical way to your view of analytics and strategy and is marketing performing, you're kind of welcoming in that healthy scientific criticism. And I think that that sounds like a really awesome way to be thinking about your marketing. There's always something to do. There's always something to improve upon. Even if the greater the greater good is there, it could probably be improved upon, which to your point, and I really love that. Yeah. And I do think to some extent, we are naturally inclined away from that because you're essentially, let's say you have three parties. You have someone who's selling you media. You have someone who's buying media. You have someone, maybe an agency in between. All three of you want that media to have been effective, right? So all three of you are are absolutely aligned in that you will take the most generous view 
uh, intuitively you will take a more generous view of what that response was. But but if all three of well, I don't know if the media seller vendor is ever going to take the view of well, actually it didn't do that well. But if you do take that view as let's say an agency and a buyer that or I I don't just want it to have done well and. And I'm not going to kind of bend my mind to believe that it has done well. I'm going to be as objective as possible and look for those areas of of opportunity. And to some extent, be congratulatory when we do find those pockets of, well, this didn't work and this didn't work. Okay, that's fine. Now now we have an opportunity. Because if my results come back and say, well, you are the best in the world at this job. Everything you just did is perfect. You've got nowhere to go from there and you can't possibly gain efficiency. So what you should be looking is, is for is, is for those opportunities and, and you should be open to them. And I know that it's easy for me to say because I, I am sitting between finance and marketing. And, and so it's a lot easier for me to take this very objective viewpoint. If I was on the marketing team, I think inevitably my, my brain would start switching a little bit towards well, perhaps we missed this or perhaps we missed that. But yes, I do think that's that's where, and that, when I've worked with companies, that it's when that mindset's in place that you've seen the most you know, efficiency gains. What's that dynamic like? I've had some really good interest. We, we've, I've lived through it, worked on it, but also lately talked to some good people on finance and in marketing. You're kind of that in between, it sounds like, in some, in some instances. Yeah. What is that dynamic like and how do you kind of help set that up for success? Your traditional stereotypical view is finance wants to stop spending and marketing wants to spend more and then you sit in between and balance the books. I think that's an old-fashioned view of it now. And I definitely, I think everyone can be aligned, but you have, you have a, a marketing team that's great at making their marketing better. And they're, they're focused on the day-to-day of making their marketing better. But they're not necessarily the, the most objective source of what did that marketing just do and, and where, where should we be investing. And then you've got a finance team that's, that's looking for as objectively as possible at where the best investments can be made, but doesn't understand the practicalities of every single thing, every single investment decision that can be made, right? Because they can't have that same depth of knowledge as the operating teams do. So I think it's it's that area in between where we try and help as much as possible by taking the objectivity of finance, but taking the kind of operational awareness that, that the marketing teams have. And we have to borrow that that knowledge from them. I know that we have it on our own, um, but we can get close to that and say, okay, I, I understand. In theory, we would spend 10% more on this channel. In practice, we can't because either this channel is at 100% or is at 0%. There are those situations that come up and I think it's it's like understanding those nuances as well. This may be presumptuous, but do you think that the best marketers and the best finance folks are able to kind of put on the Dominic hat a little bit and kind of do you have it that way while collaborating with you? Yeah, I think so. I, I hopefully the Dominic hat is just objectivity. I think that's the that's the thing that I, I'm trying to to bring. Um, as much as kind of uh, methodological techniques and, and things like that, but I do think it's that objectivity. And yeah, I, I increasingly you know, marketing is numbers driven, right? It's if you go back twenty years, it all looked very different, uh, and so. Yeah, I think most marketers now have a really keen eye on well, what is my cost per lead and, and and what should it be and what are the marginal cost per lead. All of these type of things, I think, are, are very easy for a, for a marketing person to access now. Uh, and I do think uh, from a finance side, that's true as well. And then I think it just goes to the next level of how can we optimize? What changes can we make? That's awesome. What were some of the experiments and tests and conversations that were maybe most exciting or most impactful to you or the brands that you are working on? Aside from the eBay one that we mentioned earlier, I think 
Well, I was at um, Facebook. We worked with a lot of smaller clients, not smaller clients, but we worked with a lot of advertisers. And Mm -hmm. user-level testing on media was just such a new thing at that point. We're talking 10 years ago, I'm I'm old. But it was a while Mm -hmm. back. It was such a new idea that, um, and it was kind of one step beyond what we'd done at eBay. We would have liked to have done the user-level testing, but we couldn't identify the individuals as well as that. But then Facebook could. Um, and so they have that user level test tool, which now everyone can use. Um, but back then it was it was new. And and the questions were, well, why would I do this? I have an MTA model or a last click model. I don't need this. And so a lot of it was that, that conversation. But it, they were really good conversations to have because you're challenging the orthodoxy of, of using this model, which has built an entire industry up to that point and, and, and challenging it. But, but challenging it in a way that I think was positive and, and kind of has, have, has helped the industry. And you do, I think testing is such a, is such a not a buzzword, but it's like central to the industry now. People do test a lot. And, uh, and I think being part of that early on was, was really good because you had these conversations with clients and you, you could see people's kind of eyes open to this idea of, oh, I could do this, right? I get it now. So they move from why would I to, okay, how, where else can I do this? Like, where, where? And it was good to see the industry move, move in that direction as well. The other one I would just tag on to that is, is MMM. If you ever work on MMM models, then they're not tests per se, obviously, but there's, a, there's just a degree of magic in MMM modeling. You take all of this uncertainty and you can, if it works well, you can kind of create a, a model that explains so much. That's amazing. Yeah, I think they can be they can be really powerful as well. Um, it's it's a pain. They're, I've worked on a lot and they've never been easy, easy, but they're certainly getting easier now just because people have great data. Um, I don't know if you've talked to anyone regarding Robin, the 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 kind of the open source MMM model that Facebook created. That's a really good starting point for anyone as well. That's super helpful. We've we've run into it a little bit and we've we've done some lift testing through there, but I, I love that call out and it's a really great one for folks to kind of hone in on and look at as well. And for those that are not as familiar with MMM, would you say that how would you kind of describe it for folks new to it and kind of what how it's maybe better than other views of incrementality? Yeah, it does attempt to tease out that specific question of incrementality. So you have all of your media channels as inputs into a big regression model. And let's say you're trying to predict sales and you can put in what I spent on TV. It really was born out of TV. It's such an old methodology mm-hmm. it was born because TV was, was so hard to measure. But But now you can put all of your other channels in there too. So you could look at spending on Google, you can look at spending on Facebook, you could look at even things like outdoor advertising, or you because re- what you're really building is a model that says, I spent this at this time, how did my sales respond to that? So that's the, that's the, the kind of theoretical part of it. You, in order to understand what your media did, you have to understand what everything else did as well. Um, so that's the hard part. Uh, you have to understand seasonality and you have to understand if, if weather affects your business, which it, it does for a lot of, of businesses. And, you know, uh, holidays, all of these other kind of pieces that, that fit together to, to determine your sales on a given day. You can't just put your ad spend in there. You have to put all of those things in there to build it. The great thing about it is that it's agnostic to the user level path. 
So it ignores the last click model, it ignores the impression model. So you're losing information there, but you're gaining something by, by having an independent view of it. So it's a great way of kind of calibrating your MTA because it's not biased by your MTA. If, you're, if your MTA says, I spent this and there was this clicks and this much came back, and your model says the same thing, they've, they've arrived at that conclusion from different places. Um, so it's really good as a, as a way of um, benchmarking. And then the other thing, obviously, if, if you have channels that aren't covered by MTA or aren't fully covered by MTA, it's, it's a great way of, of measuring them. Uh, I think the other thing is just that if privacy rules change your kind of information that you have on path to purchase, if you don't know if people saw it or if they clicked on it, um, and I, I suspect increasingly in the future that might be the case, then this model doesn't need that. So it's it's also a, a kind of future-proofed model. So I think if you went back... Huge. Yeah. And I think if you went back, you know, a few years, MMMs were were outmoded and, and old because you have MTA models. Why do you need this? And and then I think now there's a an increasing recognition that oh, this is actually a great way of of covering the future, not just the past. That's really that kind of dovetails perfectly in my next question, and it's so exciting. I can envision a world where it sounds like you're saying for those listening that hey, privacy concerns go up, your MTA visibility goes down. Generally speaking. The growth and importance of MMM is even more underscored. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think it underscores this idea as well that I know you and I are probably probably aware of, but just generally, we don't need to know the individual person's conversion. We don't necessarily care that it's this person. We, we only use that information to draw to draw a, a, a kind of path and a, and a map to to clicks and, and impressions and things like that. But we don't really, really need to know it at that level. And so I, I guess I say that just so if people are worried about when I talk about privacy, believe in personal privacy, and I, and I, uh, I don't want to know what you bought. I want to know that X sales happened because this happened. I don't need to know anything about any individual person ever. And I don't want to know that. And there's too many. <laughs> I'm just trying to draw that path. And, um, and I do think drawing that path does clash with personal privacy sometimes because as an individual, maybe I don't want people to know that I saw this ad and I clicked on this ad and I bought this thing. I, I, it doesn't matter. Um, but then I do think because the, the MMM model ignores all of that layer of information and just builds it out at the, the, the kind of um, the aggregate that it will always be immune to any changes to privacy that we have in the future. So yes, that's, that's the benefit I see. I love that. There's another theme I'm thinking of around the specifics of MMM and it does kind of relate to like past versus future and maybe you can guide me here. So is MMM looking, is a look back of the past performance and kind of assess if marketing worked or is it, can it be predictive of future? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. If, if it can never be predictive or prescriptive, it, it's a little value. I mean, I guess it, there's some value. It, it helps you understand where your investments were and maybe you can make big kind of changes based off that. But no, ideally what you get out of that model is also it, the, the kind of scenario planner piece of it where you say, I have diminishing returns up to this point. So I could spend up to here and then I could be spending here in these different channels. So yes, it, ideally it does help predict the future in terms of how much you should be spending. It also can, one of the, I mentioned that you have to take into account seasonality and all of these other pieces. And a lot of the public, uh, sorry, the, the open source uh, model, Robin, for example, does that really well to the extent that you can actually use it for forecasting as well. So even if you weren't working with marketing data and you just want to know 
how many sales am I likely to see if these things continue? It works for that too. So it has a lot of really helpful side effects that that come out from building this model. And that's what I mentioned. There's a bit of magic in there because you go in there wanting to work out what, what my TV spend did and what my kind of Google spend did. And you come out understanding seasonality and whether you have a long-term trend that's going up or down when you take all the noise out and all of these pieces. So you do get a lot of, of useful predictive pieces from there too. That's amazing. Yeah, quite a testament to, to the power of that model and the fact that it's open source, I would venture, really creates makes it more valuable. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. I, I have a bias to wanting to build things in-house um, so, that, so that you can fit all of your in-house pieces together and you can understand everything and, and you can see inside it. And so, yeah, I like the, the open source model for that reason. It, it takes effort, but at the same time, I think it's worth it to, to have something internally that, that you truly do understand because the outputs of a black box model are useful, especially if they do give you very prescriptive, go and spend this here at this time and this will happen. They're useful in that sense, but there's no substitute to really understanding what's going on underneath there. And so you can know, well, yeah, this may this may be true, but the margin of error is really wide, or I'm really confident that this will happen and, and the model's always going to keep, keep giving me that. I think you get that extra layer of understanding if, if you build it in-house. Yeah, no, I love that. It's really fascinating because I think they, it sounds like there's a lot to be built on top of, and I imagine a number of businesses are doing that, probably a mix of in-house and out-of-the-box, I'm guessing, or? I think so. I You have little choice sometimes to, to go with third-party things, right? If, depending on what you're trying to measure, sometimes you just don't have that layer of data to, to do things. Um, so I think there are occasions where you inevitably will will lean on someone like Facebook lift testing, for example, you you can't run that same test internally. You have to rely on Facebook and then therefore you get less information back from it. So I think you're always balancing those pieces. But yes, third-party tools are definitely useful. Sometimes they're essential because you can't do it without them. But if I have the ability to, to build it in-house, my, my bias and my preference is always to try and do it internally so that that level of data exists and exists to, to feed so many different pieces as well. Yeah, I love that. And it, is there kind of spending sizes where you kind of say, okay, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little here, thinking through how you're counseling client, you know, clients. Primarily, you're you're really a great. Aside from Facebook, correct me if I'm wrong. You're really representing one brand and getting a lot of those questions from finance and marketing, right? Right. But thinking through, like in a hypothetical scenario, brand that spends a hundred million a year, maybe they, or sorry, they're making a hundred million plus a year. Maybe they're spending, you know, minimum five a year on marketing, which isn't a lot in your standards. Mm-hmm. Where do you counsel them? Let's say they're on five or six performance marketing channels. Maybe maybe a little bit of TV, maybe a little bit of audio. Like, is there is there a spend level where it's like a lot of this doesn't make sense, and it kind of like. Is there a, how do you kind of guide those brands that are kind of in those situations that might be working their way up to being, you know, a, uh, a fan duel? It's a tough question because the answer is it depends. And I know that's not a great answer, um, but, <laughs> but basically it depends less on the budget and more on the impact. So if you are working at a company where the impact of marketing is, is fairly small compared to the natural baseline that that 
that company has. So I, I don't want to presuppose any other companies, but let's say Amazon, right? Obviously the Amazon mm-hmm. placement is really high. If Amazon stopped spending on marketing, what would happen? They wouldn't disappear overnight. They would drop by something. And I don't know what that something is. Um, but there are smaller companies where if they stop spending overnight, they would drop by 50% or, or more. And, and so if you have that impact, then it's very easy to measure. And, and it doesn't matter so much on how much you're spending. It's it's what that, what that share is. Now, that's actually the answer to the question rather than the question, right? Because you want to understand how much is being driven by by marketing and you don't necessarily know beforehand. But I would say if that signal is strong and I've worked at places where the um, the spend is not necessarily that high, but the signal is strong, then it's a very easy model to build. Um, conversely, though, if you're if you're moving the kind of top line by one or two percent, I don't know, Coca-Cola as well, for example, I'm sure that their advertising has a massive impact, but I'm sure it's also very hard to measure because there's so much of a baseline that, that you're building it on. Um, so it, it depends in that sense, more so than how much am I spending? It's how much of my of my sales, shall we say, are being driven by marketing. And if it's less than, say, 5%, it can be really noisy and it can be really difficult to, to pick that up, especially if you break down into the smaller channels. But if mm-hmm. it's 20%, yeah, you, you should you could build a model very quickly that, that, that kind of detects that. That's interesting. And if, and if you're kind of in that hypothetical scenario and you kind of have a, you know, a suite of cards that you can kind of hand out to say, okay, we're going to run this type of a test or we're going to run this type of a test, not like to say that, the number of options is the key, but just out of curiosity, is there like, you have kind of five options to choose from? I know it's a little overly simplistic for your world, but, or is it kind of like, Hey, these are the two that I kind of go to, um, currently. If if you can do a user level test, there's never really a, a great cost to that in terms of opportunity loss. Um, so for example, if you're sending out an email campaign, you can keep back 10% of, of your user base pretty easily you arguably lose 10% of your total impact because you did that, but then also you measure that impact and then you can optimize it in the future. So going back to the the scenario we talked about earlier, if it was a launch campaign, I probably wouldn't do that. Um, If it's a campaign that's going to go out once a month, then I really would want to know how effective it was and how I could impact the effectiveness of it. And so I would keep a, a hold out. So I don't think there's a real cost there. And, and I, I would put a user-level uh, user test in every chance I could. And I don't think that changes how, how you spend. And I don't think it changes the response that much. Facebook, for example, if I'm doing a, a Facebook campaign, I would I would just put a user-level test. And I think you can pretty much set it up by default and, and get the results every time. So there's, there's really no reason not to. So yes, I, I think those ones those really easy, nice, low-touch ones I, w- I would do every time. If it comes to things like geo-testing or pulse spend testing as well, if you're trying to build a model, you can turn your spend on and off. It's slightly disruptive from a from an operating point of view, but it, it does help you read into a model. Uh, so those are slightly more disruptive operating things, uh, geo-testing, pulse testing. Those are, but those are ones I would do if I really wanted to measure. And so I think user-level test, really kind of a no-brainer it's very easy pulse testing it's it's easy to to kind of operate it's not that easy to measure but it's it gives you more than than the absence of those things um, and then geo level tests yeah it's slightly harder to operate against but it, it gives you a, a nice read so it's uh, I, I would do those that's things. great i would do those things if if uh but only if i really wanted to measure them and i i think i'm a i'm not i'm not unique but one of one of the things i try and push as an analytics person is I don't want to shoehorn everything into my measurement solution. I don't want you to do these things because I, I want to be able to measure it. I, I need to know if it's if it needs to be measured first to make sure that we have that right path of 
why are we doing this? We're not just doing this because I want to do it. That's not the right reason to do it. Let's do it because we want to replicate it. And if we don't want to replicate it, then do we need to do these things? So it's, it's getting that right path between making it measurable and, and making it impactful. Do you think that's where some maybe get get it wrong, that they're not thinking enough about the consequences of going through a, a test? Do you think there's a there's a percentage of folks that do that? I'm biased towards doing tests if if we can, um, naturally, because otherwise I wouldn't have a job ultimately. But yeah, I, I am biased towards doing the test. I, I do think, um, I think it can create conflict when we're saying, actually, we just we just lessened the possible impact of this because we wanted to test it. And we're not really using those results for anything. Like those, those type of scenarios are the ones mm-hmm. where I think it creates conflict. Um, but I think if you lay out beforehand and you can lay out before with any kind of test you do almost have this, was it like pseudo code logic where you say, if this happens, then we'll do this. And if this happens, then we'll do that. If you can't articulate that before a test, then there's not that much point doing a test. So if you can't, if, if you say, well, I'm going to hold back 10% of my email campaign and what will you do if it doesn't pass a certain threshold? Nothing. I'll do exactly the same thing. Okay, you don't need to do that. Then it's not going to change anything. So it's that it's that point that, that I, I try and make. What a great reminder for so many. I think that's super, super helpful. We talk a lot about like data literacy in our organization and training and understanding data. How, how, how have you done that in your career? How do you help kind of demand that and collaborate with your teams to make sure that that data literacy is there. I think I've been fortunate in the working with most marketing teams now, especially the digital marketing teams, there's usually a very good data literacy as a standard. I think the nature of the the business has has certainly made that almost a prerequisite for a lot of the roles. Um, I think the other piece is having a company that does just have the data and has kept the data in the right place. And, And I'm, most of my experience has been with um, bigger companies or later stage startups where they've kind of got that piece already and that, that's been done. So I've been fortunate in that sense because I do think if that's not there, it's hard to get everyone aligned to a certain metric. I think if you've built on that bedrock of just having the data available and people also being confident that that data is right. And so when they look at uh, a number being unusual, the question is not, well, what's wrong here? Did we just we, we, we forget to like run a, a data poll or did we do whatever. I think if you get to that point where they're confident that this is representative of a real thing that's just happened, and then the question is, well, what, do we, what actions do we take based off that? I think that's, that's a good kind of level to be working with day to day. You do need to get to that point. And I think for smaller companies, it's harder just because there's, there's more volatility in the data. Uh, but once, yes, once, you've got, once you're confident that the thing you're looking at reflects real life and not some artifact of the data, then I think you're in a good spot. I love it, Dominic. We talked a little bit about uh, football, UK, soccer. Maybe you can share uh, for the audience a little bit about your, your team and, and okay. uh, who you're going for. So this may, for some people, this is going to be gobbledygook, but I um, <laughs> I support Nottingham Forest, who are now in the Premier League, um, have been for the last season and a bit. And it's been so exciting because they were out of the top division for so long, for 20 years, and they just got into the top division. They only just stayed up last season, but now they're, they're looking good. So it's very exciting for me because I get to watch them on regular TV all the time now. And it's just it's such a step change from, from where it was before. It's, it's really good. So I have no complaints. Because they are not expected to win every game, they're not, I'm not disappointed when they don't win. I'm not even that disappointed when they lose. And when they do win, 
I'm excited for an entire weekend. So it's a really, I'm, I'm really <laughs> fortunate right now. That's really cool. How how did you become a fan of that particular team? Oh, it was just my local team. So I, I kind of got into it by default. Um, so I'm, I was born in Nottingham. I love it. And any particular players to uh, follow or that you, uh, you love? And- they have a lot of good players now. There's, um, there's a, a, a guy called Ibrahim Sangare, who just, he's, I think, our most expensive signing now. Morgan Gibbs-White, who is on the cusp of the England team, although that's a, that's a tough midfield to break into. And then there's a new centre-back that we signed from Brazil called Murillo. And he is, he's only played two games and he's so good. And so maybe if we replay this in a year, people will be talking about Murillo like, oh yeah, obviously we know who he is. He's like the best centre-back in the world. We, we could be doing that or, or people may well know, not know who he is. But I, I think he has potential to be, a, to be a big name. I love it. I did just watch, um, relatedly, um, England, Italy. Jude Bellingham was playing. He doesn't play for Forest Place for Real Madrid, but I actually think he's probably the best player in the world right now. And, and he plays for England, so that's nice. Absolutely. I love it. You guys going to win another World Cup? Um, maybe the Euros. They, the, England just qualified for the Euros in Germany next year. So uh, that's, a, that's a realistic one, I think. We came second last time, so it's, it's not. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Dominic, it's been a pleasure, man. You, you shared so many great insights and really grateful for the time you shared with the audience and, and your knowledge and expertise. It means a lot for folks that want to follow you and, and maybe uh, learn more about you and your story and what you're working on. Is there Where can people find you or if you'd like them to? <laughs> Reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's Dominic Williamson. There are a few Dominic Williamson's. There's not that many. Look for the one who was at eBay and Facebook. They'll probably find you the right one. There was a cricketer called Dominic Williamson. That's not me. He's almost the same age as me. He played cricket in England at the same time for an, a local club. Um, so he is, is, is the slightly more famous Dominic Williamson, I would say. But yeah. unless you're interested for now. in cricket, <laughs> unless you're interested in cricket, um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bother him. How's your cricket skills? Oh, awful, awful. It's, uh, it's <laughs> the worst sport for me, I think. Um, so, no. Me too. We're in good company. Dominic, it's a pleasure. All the best, man. And talk to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye.